It's a delight to be with you this morning. It's been a delight to be here to teach at the Trinity Pastors College, and it's a special delight to me today to be have the privilege to preach to you. I want to preach to you today on Leah, a gospel story. I hope that this is also what God wants for you. So please turn to Genesis 29 and follow while I read verses 16 to 35. Genesis 29, verses 16 to 35. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah, brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me with for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. He gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was born, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. These chapters of Genesis tell the story of Jacob, but the particular passage we have just read just as clearly focuses on the story of Leah, one of the wives of Jacob. You often read the scriptures, at least I do, with a great deal of insensitivity. Perhaps we've become too used to movies where the musical accompaniment and the dialogue leave nothing to the imagination, but the biblical telling's Biblical storytelling method uh, is different. It is characterized by a 
comparative brevity and understatement. Because of this, I confess that I was for a long time oblivious to the dramatic story which this passage tells. Perhaps you will discover that this is true of you as well. Let me tell you the story of Leah, pointing out aspects of it that are sometimes overlooked. Leah was the oldest daughter of Laban. She was also the older sister of Rachel. Rachel, her younger sister, was drop-dead gorgeous, but Leah was not. We do not know exactly what the Hebrew means when it says that she was weak-eyed, but the contrast clearly shows that it contrasts her looks with those of her beautiful sister. The text does not say that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see a long ways. No, the point is clearly that Leah was not nearly as attractive as her sister. And of course, of course, this meant that her prospects for marriage and children were dim at best. Perhaps this explains, at least partially, Laban's deceit in bringing her to Jacob instead of Rachel on that eventful wedding night. Laban was what we called in Michigan, where I grew up, a crook, an untrustworthy, deceitful man. You couldn't trust anything he said or did. We remember that later statement of Jacob that Laban had changed his wages 10 times. Still, it was probably true that in his culture, older sisters were supposed to be married first. The culture of this clan is important in another respect. We cannot entirely excuse Leah's not revealing Laban's subterfuge to Jacob. When she was brought into the tent on the wedding night, she could have said something to Jacob. She did not. But culturally, it was probably unthinkable that she should oppose her father's will. Furthermore, Leah, like any woman, longed for the loving attentions of a husband. She was desperate to have that natural longing fulfilled. But like too many women, she thought she could ignore God's rules and still fulfill her desires and get what she wanted. Perhaps she thought that if Jacob just spent the night with her, he would love her like a husband should love a wife. Of course, she was sadly deceived. In the same way that many women are deceived, when they compromise moral standards in order to have what they hope will be the intimate and committed attentions of a man. Whatever enjoyment and hope she had that whole night with Jacob was dashed in the morning. How she longed for another loving caress from him. But what she got was shocked rejection when he realized that she was not Rachel. Now, you may question, and I do not know how Jacob couldn't have realized, even in the dark, that this was Leah and not Rachel. 
Some of you may suspect that Jacob had had too much to drink the night before at the feast, and if you think that, I could not disagree with you. But without excusing her compromise, we cannot but feel sorry for Leah. How tragically sad. How tragically sad that morning was for her. Jacob rejected her. She was caught in the middle of Jacob's angry reaction to Laban. I imagine her standing there looking on in humiliation and shame. Certainly, she was further humiliated when Jacob calmed down only when he was reassured that he could have Rachel one week later. And so Leah became the unloved wife. That's the translation of my New American Standard. Actually, the Hebrew literally says that she was hated. Now, we may debate whether unloved or hated is the best translation. When it came to Leah's feelings, though, I am quite sure that being hated was not too strong a way of describing how she felt. But a few months later, a bright spot emerged in Leah's life. Yes, Yahweh opened her womb. She began to pop out sons to Jacob, Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi. Three sons she gave to Jacob. Her culture prized childbearing. Her culture especially prized sons. And thus she hoped that Jacob would finally come to love her because of the sons that she had given him. But it does not happen. Rachel is still Jacob's beloved. She is still Leah, the hated, the unloved wife. How deep is this disappointment? All her hopes, desires, aspirations, yearnings for the romantic love of a husband are dashed and destroyed. This very basic and natural desire of the woman's soul is denied to her. But something happens next in the story of Leah that is crucial to see and easy to miss. With the birth of her fourth son, she no longer focuses on, she no longer holds out any hope for a change in her husband's attitude. The text marks a distinct change in her heart. This time, she says, this time, she says, at the birth of Judah, I will praise the Lord. She does not lapse into the bitterness toward Jacob, which could have destroyed her. She does not allow herself to have sour thoughts of Yahweh. Exactly the opposite. Rather, she says, great words, blessed words. Oh, we're so glad the scripture has them. This time, she says, I will praise Yahweh. This is the gospel story of Leah. 
What does it teach us about the gospel? What does it teach us about the transformation of Leah's soul? What may we learn about the spiritual transformation, which must become true of our souls? Let me briefly point out four things we must see in the story of the transforming of Leah's soul. We will see that the gospel story of Leah shows us that the sovereign control of God over our lives must be humbly accepted. We will see that the gospel story of Leah shows us the means which God often uses to bring men and women to himself. We will see that the gospel story of Leah shows us how God transforms the souls of his people. And then we will see that the gospel story of Leah shows us several essential principles of redemption. So let's go to the first thing. The gospel story of Leah shows us that the sovereign control of God over our lives must be humbly accepted. The Old Testament is much more than merely the stories of the human beings we encounter on its pages. It is more than the stories of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. It is the story of the great God of Israel and the sovereign creator, Yahweh. Yahweh is everywhere in this story, and you will not understand the story if you do not see him everywhere in it. What did Yahweh do in this story? He ordered the physical difference in how attractive Rachel was as compared to Leah. Yahweh is the sovereign creator of every human being and everything about them. The fact is that he makes some women beautiful and other women not so much. We may not like this. We may even object to this, but we cannot read our Bibles and fail to realize that this difference between Leah and her younger sister was the result of divine providence. You remember, don't you, Psalm 139? I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The physical differences between us and between Rachel and Leah were the product of God knitting them both together in their mother's womb, but knitting them together differently. Leah knew she had learned from her husband who Yahweh was, and Leah knew that this was the case, and she had to submit to God's providence in this matter. And bless God, she did come to submit to it. But Yahweh is also here in the fact that he ordered the romantic love of Jacob for Rachel 
rather than Leah. Jacob's failure to love Leah was certainly hard-hearted. And it was certainly his fault. Oh, some of you men are listening. It shows at some level severely wrong priorities on his part. We cannot excuse his insensitivity to Leah. But a question must be asked. Could Yahweh have softened his heart toward Leah? Could he have caused a different feeling to arise in his heart after she had given him three wonderful sons? Yes, Yahweh could have done this. Does not Proverbs 21.1 teach us that the king's heart, and so Jacob's too, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Surely Jacob's heart was also in the hand of the Lord, and he could have moved it to love Leah. But he did not. That is a simple fact. Leah knew that it was the fact, and she had to submit to God's providence in this matter as well. And we must say that he ordered the cultural customs of Laban and his clan, Laban and his tribe. Unenlightened as those cultural realities were which surrounded Leah, unfair as they were, Yet the fact is that they had arisen under the overruling providence of God. And once more, an overruling providence could have made them different than what they were. But it did not. He could have made Laban a better man, less of a crook and a beast than he was. Once more, Yahweh did not intervene to cause Laban to drop dead of a heart attack before he took Leah into that tent. He could have done so, could he not? What kind of God do you have if he couldn't have done that? Leah knew that this was the case. She had to submit to God's providence in this matter. Well, what is our conclusion of this first point? You may wonder, certainly you may wonder why God did all of this. I'm sure that Leah struggled with these dark and difficult providences as she came to understand who the God of Jacob was. You too may be ready to question the goodness of Yahweh when you come to understand his mysterious divine sovereignty and providence. But traveling down that road, oh my dear friend, traveling down that road is useless. Yahweh exists. Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh orders all things. And the first step to light and hope and salvation in your life is when you come to submit to those things. Stop denying the reality of God's providence. Stop being angry at God's providence. The first step toward the transformation of your soul 
is to stop fighting God and submit to his sovereign ordering of your life. Dark as God's providence was toward Leah, it had a glorious purpose and result. And God, dark as God's providence toward you may seem, if you bow the knee, there will come to you the first glimpse of hope and light for your life. But there's the second thing we learn. The gospel story of Leah shows us the means which God often uses to bring men and women to himself. We see here that Yahweh's goodness was shown to Leah. How? He compensated her with several male children. Her husband did not love her, but she had sons. This is a great, great kindness to Leah. There were fewer greater blessings for a woman in her culture than this. The goodness of God, the goodness of God in this way was leading her to repentance. Leah apparently did not rebel against God's providence toward her, at least not finally. She was not so angry with God that she failed to acknowledge that God had brought great blessing into her life. She never thought to have children at all, or a husband at all. She could see this desperate longing to have children growing and increasing and gripping her sister. Yahweh had not only given her children, Yahweh had given her multiple children and multiple sons while her sister cried to Jacob, give me sons or I die. She clearly acknowledges all of this in verses 31 and following. We see her language, Yahweh has seen my affliction. Yahweh has seen that I am unloved. Yahweh has given me children. We read it there. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. I see the point is this. She was not so trapped and angered in her spirit by the lack of a loving husband that she could not see God's goodness to her in other respects. God's goodness to her in giving her children to focus on what we don't have. True? We are so prone to focus on what God has not given us. We are so prone to this that sometimes we cannot feel, acknowledge, or be glad for all that God has done for us is wrong with us. In spite of our sinfulness and wickedness, we have this unreasonable sense of entitlement. 
But Leah, oh, praise God, Leah was able to get beyond this stupid sense of entitlement and the resentment it engenders in our souls and the poison that it brings that spoils all of life. Leah was able to get beyond this, and she acknowledged God's goodness in spite of what she still lacked and longed for. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, my dear friends, let us follow her example. The goodness of God should lead us to repentance, but it will not if we're so poisoned by our resentment, so poisoned by what we don't have that we can't even see or feel it. If we're so preoccupied with what God has not given us, and oblivious to the many rich blessings His grace has bestowed. The kind of goodness which God showed Leah is often the means of leading His elect to repentance. Romans 2, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. But God did something else. Something that did not feel so good as having sons. He afflicted her by denying her something in her life that she most desired. He, he deprived her of the love she naturally gave from her husband, Jacob. In spite of the sons she had given him, Jacob still, this is the way she felt, hated her. Now, to appreciate this, you have to understand, I hope you do understand, how natural and deep is the drive in a woman's heart to have the committed love of a husband. This is one of the ingredients of biblical femininity that I point out when I preach on a subject like that. And let me emphasize it. This drive is not wrong. This desire is not evil. This longing is right. This is how God made women. He has made them to long for such love. And is this not why the scriptures summarize the whole duty of a husband? Listen to me, men. Is this not why the scriptures summarize the whole duty of a husband and summarizes it repeatedly by saying, love your wife, nurture your wife, cherish her as your own body? Why this massive emphasis? My brother, not only because it is right, but because this is what a woman most basically and deeply wants and needs. But like many women, Providence had denied this great good and deep desire to Leah. We may ask out of concern for Leah, and perhaps out of concern for ourselves, how could you do that, God? Why did you do that, God? Well, God had his reasons. And we are about to see that they were great and good reasons. God's depriving Leah of this natural desire was the knife by which he removed the cancer from her soul. This affliction thus led to some wonderful changes in her, which might never have come without the means of this affliction. 
And that brings us in the third place to the fact that the gospel story of Leah shows us how God transforms the souls of his people in their conversions. The gospel story of Leah shows us how God transforms the souls of his people. He brought her, this is the first thing, to the place of unconditional surrender to his will. Unconditional surrender. Those are the terms of the gospel, you know. Unconditional surrender to Jesus as Lord. He caused her to sacrifice, surrender, even legitimate and powerful aspirations for the love of her husband. Some women never get over that. Some women become deeply and bitterly angry with the divine providence of the denial of such a basic and legitimate desire as the desire for the committed attentions of a husband. But by the powerful inner working of the grace of the Holy Spirit, Leah did not. Leah did get over him. Leah sacrificed those desires on the altar of her love for Yahweh. There was a break with her former life. She drew a line in the sand of her emotions and psyche with the birth of her fourth son. And she said, this time, I will praise the Lord. You see, she stops living for the love of Jacob, starts living for the praise of Yahweh. She gives up her desire for the love of Jacob. She surrenders it to God. And this, this, however, allows us to see a second thing that happened in her soul. He brought her, Yahweh brought her to the place of fundamental satisfaction with his goodness and glory. Fundamental satisfaction with his goodness and glory. He reoriented her life to a satisfied focus on the goodness of God to her and a supreme commitment to the glory of God. She not only gave up something, but as is always the case with true transformation of the soul, she replaced it with something else. She gave up her idolatry for the love of her husband, but she replaced it with satisfaction with the goodness and glory of God. She determines that having set aside the fruitless longing for the love of Jacob, she will focus her affections, her love, and her praise on Yahweh. It reminds us, does it not, of Isaiah 54, 5, for your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. Yes, yes, she would find in Yahweh all that she lacked in her earthly husband. What does that teach us about conversion, about the Christian life? Well, it teaches us both about initial conversion and the ongoing transformation of sanctification in the Christian life. Leah is, I think, an illustration 
of the initial transformation that must take place in conversion. Conversion always brings unconditional surrender to the demands of the gospel. It always involves a transformation which reorients the soul toward a supreme love for God. Is this not the teaching of Jesus? Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he could have had husbands. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 18, 29 and 30, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, we may add husbands, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Or Matthew 10, 37 to 39, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. True conversion stories involve, they always involve this kind of sacrificial surrender to the sovereignty of God, this kind of supreme commitment to Him. Until conversion, the life of sinners revolves around themselves. They wouldn't say it, but the world really does revolve around them. That's the way they live and that's the way they think. No matter the sacrifice, conversion brings us all to know that our only good is in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings a change. This is so clearly illustrated in the gospel story of Leah. Conversion, my friend, always brings a break with the past. I'm not saying everybody knows the exact time of their conversion. I don't believe that. Frankly, I can trace the exact time of my conversion down to about 15 years between the time I was three and the time I was 18. So conversion, however, whatever you think about knowing the time of your conversion, it is still true that conversion always involves a break with the past. This time, Leah says, I praise the Lord. Conversion brings a new time in someone's life. Some people assume this means that you know the exact time. I don't assume that. Such is the remaining darkness of the human soul after conversion, and such is the gradually dawning character of the gospel that some cannot discern the exact moment of their conversion. But whether or not they know the exact time, all those who experience true conversion experience a break with the past and a new time in their lives. What you have been doing, my friend, hasn't been working. It hasn't been working very well, has it? The way you've been living your life really hasn't been working very well. And yet you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You know, someone has said the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and yet expect different results. You need to break with the past. 
you need to say with Leah, this time I will praise the Lord. This time it will be different. This time I will praise the Lord. But Leah is not only an example of initial conversion, she is an example of the ongoing transformation of sanctification. Conversion does not, you know, I expect you do know it if you're a Christian, does not mean that uh, self-centeredness and self-absorption is gone forever and you never struggle with it again, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean that. Remaining sin is a reality in the Christian. Again and again, the Christian has to rededicate himself to the sacrificial surrender to the sovereign will of God that began in conversion. He has to commit himself again and again to that supreme commitment to the glorious praise of God that is essential to conversion. Life brings challenge after challenge after challenge to live for the glory of God, temptation after temptation after temptation to drift away from that fundamental reality, doesn't it? This is the reality of the Christian life. And again and again and again, we have to come back to that wonderful, luminous, light-filled experience of Leah and say with her, this time, now, again, I will praise the Lord. Are you facing that kind of challenge here this morning as a Christian? And is it time for you to say again with Leah, this time I will praise the Lord? I'll meet this challenge the same way that God enabled me to meet all the bitterness of soul that I had before I was a Christian. This time, I will praise the Lord. I will, I will once again renew my unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will once again renew my fundamental satisfaction in the goodness and glory. Well, all of this brings us to a fourth lesson, a fourth, a fourth lesson from our text. And this is that the gospel story of Leah shows us essential principles of redemption. Yes, it does. It shows us essential principles of redemption. Here I need to ask you to remember the unfolding story of redemption as it comes to us in Genesis, and yes, throughout the entire Old Testament. That story centers in, of course, the Messianic seed. This Messianic seed is first introduced as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. It is later introduced as the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 and following. Now Leah's story must be placed in this larger story. The Messianic line is traced through Isaac and not Ishmael. It is identified with Jacob and not Esau. And now in Genesis 29, it is identified with Leah and not Rachel. The story of Leah ends her here with her giving birth to, to Judah. And we discover later in Genesis that the line of the Messiah, <laughs> the line of the Messiah is to come through Judah. Genesis 49.10 reveals 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh comes through Judah. Judah comes through Leah. This is so significant. Don't you see it? What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us, first of all, that God has a heart for the poor and needy in the gospel. Somebody has a sermon on Leah entitled, The Girl Nobody Wanted. Rachel was the girl everybody wanted, but who did God choose? He chose Leah to be the great several times over, grandmother of the Messiah, and not Rachel. What a resource of encouragement this is for those who feel themselves to be like Leah, the, the girl nobody wanted. Well, perhaps, perhaps she was the girl nobody wanted. But the great truth of our story, oh, my dear sister, oh, my dear woman, the great truth of this story is that God wanted her. But we also learn here that God chooses the poor as the special objects of his electing mercy. Do you remember James 2.5? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Or you do you remember 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28? For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. And so in the story that we have been preaching this morning, God chooses Leah and not Rachel. Yahweh favors Leah the unloved, the unbeautiful, over gorgeous Rachel. What a, don't you see it? What a wellspring of hope there is in this for us. Ordinary people, poor people like us, are the ones God chooses and uses in the plan of redemption. We must not try to be or, or be or think we are the church of perfect people. No. No. Our goal is to be the church of God's poor nothing. But then we see that God chooses to save people entirely through the messianic seed, Jesus Christ. God brings redemption through a Messiah, and he brings that redemption from the line of Judah. All we need for salvation is Christ. 
There's a gospel song that says that all we need is Christ. And it's true. This is how that great passage in 1 Corinthians I just quoted concludes. So that no one may boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And we have everything in him who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, everything is in Christ, the wisdom of God, the righteousness we need, the sanctification we need, the redemption we need. It's all there in Christ, and that's the only place it is. It is no place else whatsoever. So that, the text continues, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what salvation does to somebody. It kills their pride, and it makes them boast in one thing, the Lord. God chooses the nothing so that he can give them everything in Christ. God chooses the nothing so that everybody will see that all the glory belongs to Christ. I don't know, but I hope that some of you came in here this morning feeling yourself to be nothing, feeling your sins, feeling your need, feeling your ill desert, feeling your wickedness. You know, God's people came in here with that sense of sin, but that sense of sin relieved through their faith in Christ. Do you feel yourself to be nothing? Are you one of the poor of this world? Then you may have all that you need in Christ. And you'll give all the glory to Christ when you're saved because you know you didn't have anything whatsoever to do with it yourself. And that's what God wants. That's what God wants. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, so that no man may boast before God. I urge you, I plead with you, in your poverty, in your need, in your nothingness, to find refuge, to take refuge in the great tower that is Christ Jesus. God, Yahweh's eternally begotten Son, take refuge in him. He is intended to be a Savior for people just like you. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you. We're so thankful for the story of Leah. We're so thankful for the hope and light and salvation that it preaches to us. We ask that it might, that light, that light might penetrate into the souls of your people and even of those who are without this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.